moving a little so we can uh, make room for other people as they come in. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful day outside. I admit it. It's, it's really, really nice, and and uh, and so maybe that's for everybody's out. But you guys are here, and we're here to have a Bible study. And so uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 41 this evening. So if you want to turn there, and uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and. Someone will get one to you. You can get up and get one yourself. There's one over here, over here. (laughs) Good. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord. And any time, Lord, that we can be in your word, it's a great time. It's a great opportunity. And we know, Lord, that you have something to teach us this evening, Lord. And so we ask your blessing upon our time together, Lord. We we praise you for your goodness, for your greatness, for your sovereignty in our lives, Lord. We praise you for your faithfulness and uh, awesomeness, Lord, and that you uh, continue to work in and through our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we just would learn from you this evening, Lord, as we dig into your word. Bless this time, we pray. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our last study together, we pointed out that we're beginning the second major section of the book of Isaiah. We had seen that in chapters 1 to 39, we've seen the sovereign Lord sitting upon his throne in judgment. Now in chapters 40 through verse to chapter 66, rather, we see the Lord as a Savior hanging on the cross. Chapters 1 through 39, we've seen the burden of the Lord. Chapters 40 through 66, the blessings of the Lord. I think to, to better understand how we get to chapter 41, let me give you a quick overview of how we got to the event that we're going to read about in chapter 41. Let's go back to David. Okay, he was Israel's greatest king. Then there was David's son, Solomon. Uh, Solomon's uh, uh, Israel's wisest and wealthiest king. And But then uh, things fell apart with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in some ways Israel's most foolish king, and which then all the the nations had split along the the tribal lines. The ten northern tribes seceded from the, the, then formed the nation of Israel, leaving the the two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, to form their nation, and with uh, Jerusalem as the capital. Well, a people called Assyria, based in what is Uh, Today's northern Iraq had dominated much of the Middle East at that time. In 722 B.C., the idolatrous nation of Israel fell to the Assyrians and they were deported to to another part of the um, Assyrian Empire. Uh, Then a new king started rising up, the Babylonians from today's southern Iraq, and they took the world stage under Nebuchadnezzar and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple in 586 B.C., hauling off you know, important people into exile like, like Ezekiel and, and Daniel. Well, after Babylon, then Persia rose from what is today Iran. And on the night that King Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, you remember that story, the Persians breached the Babylonian walls, destroyed their empire, or the Babylonian empire, and became the superpower of the ancient world. Now, that Persian leader was a man named Cyrus, and it was Cyrus who issued this decree in 539 B.C. for the Jews to return to their land and to end exile. Now, what's so amazing about the chapter this evening is that Isaiah, while, you know, Isaiah is living and preaching while the Assyrians are still in power. Persia was really nothing at this time. In fact, it's before the Babylonian Empire and certainly before anyone have ever heard of King Cyrus of Persia about 150 years before. But... He talks about Cyrus here in chapter 41. And then actually mentions his name, him by name, in chapters 44 and 45. 
And so we have this whole buildup of what's happening uh, uh, now. This is before uh, uh, the southern kingdom has been overrun by Babylon. And so here we have this, this, this prophecy really happening. Now, this whole chapter, chapter 41, as it unfolds, it's a courtroom scene in which the, the Lord, asked, as judge, asked the heathen nations and its leaders to come together before his bench and present their case. And the Lord is going to show that he's going to judge these nations and he's going to tell them beforehand how he's going to judge them and it's going to come to pass. So we begin with verses 1-4 through four of chapter 41. As the Lord says to Isaiah the prophet, he says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment, who raised up one from the east, who in righteousness calls, called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So, picture this courtroom scene. The Lord says, quiet in the courtroom. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. He says, let's gather together for judgment. He's opening up the court case. And he says, let the people renew their strength, let them come near, then let them speak. Now, if you're going to go head-to-head with God, you better be at your full strength. You better be ready. So he tells the people to renew their strength. Now, of course, these are heathen nations. So they're not going to have any strength, you know, uh, from their false gods. He's going to tell them of the Persian invasion and how it's going to happen. He then asks them first a question. Look at verse 2 again. Who raised up one from the east, who gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? Now, Again, this near fulfillment is speaking of Cyrus. He's going to raise them up. You know, it's called from the east to be used by God to overthrow the Babylonians. But I also believe this ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ, a far fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Let me read verses 2 and 3 in the New Living Translation. I think it helps us a little bit. He says, Who has stirred up this king from the east, rightly calling him to God's service? Who gives this man victory over many nations and permits him to trample their kings underfoot? With his sword, he reduces armies to dust. With his bow, he scatters them like shaft before the wind. He chases them away and goes on safely, though he is walking over unfamiliar ground. So the, the Persian Empire was strong. It was powerful. The Lord is saying, there's going to be a man I will raise up, and he's going to trample these nations. And it's going to be like they were nothing. And then he asks the question uh, and answers it himself. He says in verse 4, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and the last I am he. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Same title Jesus Christ gives himself in Revelation 22.13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God is saying, since I know the beginning from the end, it's no big deal for me to tell you, I'm sending a conqueror. I'm sending this guy in and he's going to take over. Now upon hearing the news, instead of looking to the God of Israel for a deliverer, as heathens do, they look to the rivals of false gods. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. Then the coastlands sought and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It's ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So instead of going to the Lord said, Man, let's get our gods ready. <laughs> let's make sure they're strong. I mean, he's got these, these coastlands. He's heathen nations. Knowing that the Persians are going to come eventually, they're going to be afraid. And instead, they call upon their gods. 
They said, well, let's pull all our ingenuity together, bring all of our trades together, guys that work with hammers, the, the solderers, come together so that we can make sure that our God can stand up for us and not totter back and forth. I mean, it'd be pretty embarrassing if, you know, you're ready to have your God stand up for you and he falls down on the ground. I mean, it's not real comforting or encouraging. But you see that the stupidity of idolatry. But there's a real tragedy here as well. It's trusting in something or someone that really can't help you, that really can't save you. When you're under pressure, when you're under duress, under stress, where is your refuge? Who do you turn to? Who do you trust? I mean, do you turn to Facebook? Oh, I got to You turn to a person. You turn to a hobby. You turn to, you know, Xbox. I don't know, or nicotine, or or eighty or hundred proof, or porn, or food. I mean, looking at other things in your life instead of looking to the Lord. Be careful. See, when, when you run for help when the pressure hits hard, where you run to help, rather, when the pressure hits hard, will indicate where you're at spiritually. Are you running close to the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord when things happen? Are you going off of maybe even your own ideas and your own thoughts? Well, I think this and I think that. And we need to turn to the Lord. I mean, if you're going through times of temptation and trials, look to the Lord, not things of the world. Draw near to Him. I think of the story of Dagon, you know, the fish god over in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Remember after the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into, and, into their temple and, and for the god, the fish god. And when the Ark arrived, that the fish god, Dagon, fell on his face. And, and, and the priests popped up their god only to discover the next day that Dagon, it, Dagon was back down on the ground again and, and only this time breaking his hand and, 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 and his head. Realizing that it was the presence of the one true God, their fish cod couldn't dwell in the same place at the same time. The Philistines then packed up the Ark of the Covenant, uh, put it on a wooden cart, and sent it back to Israel. Listen, in the same way, we can learn from this that the key to having victory over the Dagons in our lives is not to try to pull them down or push them over. Simply bring in the presence of God in our lives. Because where the presence is, Dagon naturally falls. The key to finding help in time of need is to run to the Lord. The way to have victory over the idols and the things in our lives that have set up in our hearts is to daily bring ourselves into the presence of God. As we spend time in, in the Lord and in the light of His Word, Dagon will fall. If you ignore, though, morning devotions and, and ignore, ignore being at church and Bible study, then that Dagon's going to stand strong in your life. But if you come into the presence of the Lord, as you worship Him with, with other people, you know, other believers, and spend time in His Word, and you worship Him day by day, you'll be free from that. See, the key to overcoming darkness is not to yell at the light or fight it. The key is simply turn on the light. So in light of God's coming judgment to these heathen nations, God is saying that they will still hold on to their gods of wood and metal that they trust in, but it's not going to do them any good. But now, verse 8, the Lord switches gears. And says to Israel, but you're different. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I love verse 10 here. So many times, and this is just personally, the Lord has used these verses like that, verse 10, to really encourage me and to take a step of faith in my life. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I love that. 
Whenever there's been a, a big decision in, in my life that I've had to take a huge step of faith, the, the Lord has brought me verses like that, like Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. To be dismayed. When I came out here, what, 18, no, a little over 18 years ago, the Lord gave me Joshua 1.9. Have I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God with, is with you wherever you go. So I have to say, when, when I came across verse 10 here in my studies for this chapter, I feel that the Lord has given me this verse once again and giving us this, the church's verse once again. I'll tell you why. Some of you may have heard this now. We as a church, we've been looking at some property that we can turn into a church. Well, we put an offer in on it. And they accepted the offer on, on this property, and, and now we have 45 days to do our due diligence to uh, make sure that it's all good. And the leadership of our church and my, my board, I mean, we're all on board, and we're all praying, and they looked at it. And the reason I'm telling you this is, is that so that you'll pray <laughs> and pray and pray some more and keep on praying for 500 North National. That's the address of the, of the facility, and uh, I'll keep you informed of the progress and once it closes. And, and I know that if you drive by it, some of you may say, you guys are crazy, okay, because um, it's going to take a whole lot of work and probably at least a year and a half to complete it. And yes, there are giants in the land, okay? There are huge giants, giant fuel tanks, five of them on the outside and, and, and two of them on the inside. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, but you know what? I don't think it's a coincidence that God has given us this verse here. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, if God before us, who can be against us? You know, unless the Lord built the house, they that labor in vain that do it. And so I believe that God is directing us there, and we're doing our, our due diligence. I got a, a, a architectural uh, engineer coming out tomorrow to take a look at it as well as an environmental specialist coming out to take a look at it tomorrow and so i just want the church to pray and and pray some more and so um keep praying now now in the context of our study here after threatening the other nations that they'll be judged god turns gently to israel and reassures them uh, of his love and of his comfort and, and do not be dismayed i am with you i am for you though i'll be against you i am for you and he reminds them that he has chosen them that they are, verse 8, descendants of Abraham. He says, my friend. I love that. Abraham was called the friend of God. Why is that? Well, James tells us in James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness and he was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God because Abraham's faith. He believed God and called him his friend. Then the Lord says to Isaiah that although the Jews have been scattered, they're going to be regathered. He says, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, he says. Listen, the point is that God is not done with the Jewish people. He is with them. He will strengthen them and uphold them by his righteous right hand. And I have to say, it's really discouraging to see how many Christian denominations today reject uh, Israel. And, and, and they, they teach that God has rejected Israel. They say that, well, since the Jews rejected uh, Jesus, God has rejected the Jews. That's so contrary to the many unconditional promises that God has made to the Jewish people. In fact, the whole prophecy of, of, of Hosea is dedicated to God taking back the unfaithful wife and redeeming her again and taking her for his bride once more. The whole book of Hosea is a picture of God speaking of the Jewish people. 
Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 37, speaks of God never breaking His covenant, covenant with the Jewish people. Psalm 105, verse 8 and 10 says, He remembers His covenant forever, the word which He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath with Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. That means it's not going to end. There's no condition to that promise. Even in the New Testament, Paul says to the Romans in Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, I ask then, has God rejected His own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected His own people, whom He chose from the very beginning. Now remember, Paul wrote that after Jesus' crucifixion, not before. As a matter of fact, if you trace uh, Catholics and Protestant denominations' current doctrine of the Jews being rejected, you will see that it stems directly from the anti-Semitism throughout Europe during the Reformation and the Catholics' persecution of them even earlier. All that to say what's out there that's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel, God's done with with Israel, is, is wrong theology. God is not done with the Jewish people. Romans 11.25, Paul says, For I wish, do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He didn't say blindness in part has happened to Israel because the fullness of the Gentile has come in. He said until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. Until that last Gentile is going to be saved, is saved, then God will then take away the Jews' blindness to the fact that, that, that Jesus is the Messiah and God will once again fulfill the promises to Israel. But it's a dangerous thing to reject those whom God has not rejected. Well, look at verse 11 through 16. He says, Blessed or rather, behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. So those that have come against my people, uh, that against you, they're going to be ashamed and disgraced. They'll be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So God is telling Israel, what the nations who hate them can expect to happen. They will be shamed and dishonored. They will perish because God is on their side. Now, a very long time ago, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. He said, Now the Lord has said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The only condition to that promise was that Abraham would go into the land, which he did. That condition was met. And that promise then is still in effect even to this day and forever. In fact, Jesus in the judgment, not the final judgment, but in the judgment that he will bring when he he returns to this earth to gather together the nations for judgment, the judgment against the nations will actually be concerning their treatment of the Jewish people. 
Jesus said in Matthew 25, 42-45, I was hungry and you did not feed me. Thirsty, you did not give me a drink. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick, and you did not help me. And they said, Lord, when do we see you hungry, naked, thirsty, and sick? He said, inasmuch as you did not do this to the least of these, my brethren, the Jews should not have done it unto me. See, he's going to still refer to them as his brethren. They've been chosen of God. God, again, has not cast them away. So the future of each nation will hinge on how they treated the brethren of Jesus, the Jews. The Lord goes on, look at uh, verse 17 through 20. It says, The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Isaiah here is telling uh, us that the Lord is promising to do something absolutely amazing. He's going to open up rivers and desolate places. He's going to bring in fountains of waters in the midst of the valleys. He says that the trees will, will flourish in the land. And actually, that partially has been fulfilled. There are areas in Israel that were once parched wilderness, desert areas, but now they're, they're irrigation projects and pools of water, giant sprinkler systems. Israel has become a very a strong agricultural nation, planting hundreds of millions of trees in the wilderness areas. And the interesting thing here is that various types of trees, they planted that they did it for various benefits that each tree gives. We read here that the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree, I will set in the desert and the cypress tree and the pine. So they plant the, the pine trees, the, the, the fir trees. They did so because they knew that the tree has the capacity to grow almost on rocks. And, and so the roots would, would go down into the crevices and they would grow down into, into the to rocks and the rocks would crack down and the rain would come and, and carry topsoil, you know, down on it. And so this is tremendous topsoil in the valleys there because of it and they're able to plant even more trees. And so the aspect of Israel becoming this fruitful nation is just an exciting thing to see that it's happened just as God said it was going to happen. Now, I believe this is only in part because I believe what he's really speaking of is the millennial reign of Christ and, and, and when, when he really he gives us a complete fulfillment of that. But you see, God is speaking forth through Isaiah what is going to happen. And from our perspective, you know, we've seen many of these, these prophecies have been fulfilled, especially with Cyrus, the king of Persia, you know, the Babylonians and all of that. And it's all here. And Isaiah predicts it. God says, I've not cast them off. I've not cast off the Jewish people. Now, what's the purpose in telling them all this? That they may see and they may understand and, and know that, they, that the hand of the Lord is on them and what's going to happen. He's there. So don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Be encouraged. I know what's going on. So now we come to verse 21, and I really like this, is God makes a challenge to those who are worshiping their false gods at that time. He says in verse 21, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Now we're back in the courtroom scene. Once the Lord says, okay, you know, maybe bangs the gavel. Present your case now. Now what case do they need to make? Well, the case that their gods are superior to the God of Israel, that they're, they're following a truth and not a lie. So the Lord challenges them. Look at verse 22. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. 
Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. Just do good or evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. So the trial continues. God says, bring forth your evidence that your gods can do anything for you. And the Lord comes up with this very simple test. The real test of a true deity will go beyond just the claims of simple sovereignty and guiding human events. The test will be who can foretell the future. God says, okay, verse 23, show the things that are going to come hereafter that we may know you are gods. In other words, if you're really God, then prophesy. Let us know what's going to happen in the future. Amen? If, if you're really the ones in control of man's destiny, then tell us what's coming next in the course of human events. Sounds pretty simple, you know, test for God, doesn't it? If you're God that lives beyond time and space, there should be no problem at all. Of course, these are false gods, not able to pass this test, and so God gets a little sarcastic. Verse 23 says, Hey, do good or do evil that we may dismay and see it together. He's basically saying, hey, if you have difficulty with the action of foretelling the future, how about, you know, doing any action whatsoever? Do something. Do anything at all. See, I picture this, maybe this courtroom scene, and you got this dumb idol just standing there, you know, a statue, standing there like that, and then God is saying, okay, you got your God there. Let's see what he can do. Say something. You know, just kind of, kind of sitting there, not moving at all. There's just silence. Maybe there's a close-up on the idol's face, and there's backing away and even more silence. Come on, you know. Say, so be realistic here. Open your eyes. False gods do nothing. And the Lord says in verse 24, Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. See, after totally proving these false gods can't do anything. The Lord looks beyond the false gods and then points his finger at the people. Those who trust in these false gods. Those who follow them. He says, man, you're, you're, you're following the, the false god over the real god. I mean, you're choosing false gods over the real god. It's sure to turn the real god against you. God calls them an abomination in verse 24. That word abomination in the Hebrew is a word to aba, and it means to be a disgusting and loathsome thing. In other words, those that choose to follow idols to God are disgusting and loathsome. So in response to these false gods who cannot predict the future with 100% accuracy, the Lord says, look at verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as a potter treads clay. Since these false gods can't foretell the future, it's a real God's turn. Now, he, he describes again how he'll raise up a powerful man who will tread upon the rulers of the earth. And again, the near fulfillment, far fulfillment, near fulfillment, uh, far fulfillment is the Lord. Near fulfillment goes back to Cyrus of Persia. And how it's gonna, God's going to use him to conquer the Babylonian Empire. And God is showing that he did not just randomly guess that a conqueror was coming. But in chapter 44, again, he's going to actually name him by name. Again, 150 years later, Cyrus will rise to the throne. The Lord says, try to top that off. And he says in verse 26, Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. Isaiah concludes that when these prophesied events have come to pass, just as the Lord said they would, then the people will know that it was the Lord, and, and that was him alone who declared from the beginning these things that would happen. The Lord is saying at this point, they can say that the only, only the Lord was right, and if he's the only one true God who would have known these events would occur just like he said. 
listen, as we look back at God's word fulfilled, God's fulfilled word, his prophecies, it's so much easier for us to look back and go, wow. I mean, look at what the Lord said here, and look at what the Lord said there, and, and over here, and it's fulfilled, and this is fulfilled. Now, back then, this was still our future for them. But we've seen it. We're from an vantage point that goes, wow, look how faithful our God is. But God's not done. We know that the Lord said that in the last days there's going to be certain events that are going to come upon the face of this earth right before His second coming. And we see those uh, prophecies really coming to, to, to fruition here. In a couple of weeks we're going to be looking at, at Second Timothy again. Some chapters are going to deal specifically with that. But these things will come to pass because God's word says so. Finally, we read in verse 27 to 29. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Now, the Lord brings it back down to these idols that were there, these, these, these false gods. And he finishes out the chapter by saying these false gods that these people were worshiping, they're nothing. There are no counselors there among them. They're empty. They're worthless. They're, their works are nothing. And they can't speak of what, what will happen before it happens like our God can. Listen, if there's going to be a prophecy given in Scripture, then to really prove the inspiration of, of Scripture, it's necessary that you have a 100% accuracy. If one word of God fell, then it means that it wasn't God who spoke. But when you have hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies that, that have come to pass exactly as he said they would, then it begins to give you an overwhelmingly strong evidence that it was indeed God who spoke these things. I find it interesting, and, and, and we're going to close with this. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there is a prophecy given that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law given from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter being a symbol of, the, of a ruling power. Now what is interesting is that there was a very tragic day in the history of, of Israel when the Roman government took away from the Jews the right of capital punishment. It was at that point that they felt that the, 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 the scepter had departed. Their ruling power had then departed. It was taken away from them by the Romans. Now, the rabbis and all the priests put ashes on their heads, and for a week they, they went welling through the streets of Jerusalem, weeping because it had meant to them that God's word had failed, that the scepter had departed and Shiloh the Messiah had not come. Little did they know, at a nearby village of Nazareth, Shiloh had come. He was right there growing up, actually fulfilling God's word. The scepter departed the ruling authority of Israel as the nation left when Shiloh, when Jesus showed up. Listen, not one word of God's prophecy has ever failed or will fail. God's word is simply amazing, simply amazing. Now, we'll get into chapter 42, and I didn't study for it this evening, and, and I thought this would take us a little bit longer, and so uh, uh, we have time to hang out tonight and, and, and so to have fellowship with each other. But chapter 42 is going to be great because it talks about Jesus, and it talks about his ministry and what he will do and, and what he will come to do, and it, it describes it so perfectly. So read ahead chapter 42, and we'll get into that next time together. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, Lord, for your word. How powerful it is, Lord. And I just praise you for, uh, Lord, the, the fact that it's true. Lord, that what you said would happen has happened. What you say will happen will happen, Lord. And we thank you for the promises, Lord, of, of being with us, Lord. 
that we don't have to fear, we don't have to be afraid, Lord, but that you are there, and Lord, as we step forward, uh, even in this opportunity, Lord, for a new building, Lord, we want to pray, Lord, that it's all of you, Lord, that you would build this. If we labor, Lord, it would be in vain if you're not in this. And so, Lord, open up our eyes to any problems that there may be in this, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would uh, give us wisdom, Lord, in, in, in dealing with this, Lord. But, Father, we also recognize that you want to do a spiritual work. It's a physical building, but you want to do a spiritual work. Lord, I believe there's some great opportunities ahead for us that you're opening up the doors for. And so, Lord, we want to be prepared for that as well. And we want to be praying, Lord, for those opportunities to be have an impact into our community to point people to your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for your power. We pray for your strength. We pray for wisdom. We pray for your blessing. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Bless our night, we pray. Give us a sweet fellowship time afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and do one last song together.